This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. This country's mental health crisis is by no means limited to adults. We know that young people frequently suffer from traumatic events. This fact has been made worse by the scourge of COVID. A recent study by the Pew Research Center revealed that well over a third, 37%, of U.S. high school students struggle with stress, anxiety, or depression due to COVID-19. We must address this crisis. We do not want to endure the effects of trauma that has been ignored for too long. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month is the fourth of our five-episode discussion with members of the National Judicial Task Force to examine state courts' response to mental illness. Some of the topics we'll explore include, what do judges and court administrators see every day in their courts that are clear indicators of this crisis? What should we be doing now in the courtroom about children, youth, and families with behavioral health needs? How can judges and court administrators support the health and safety of young people even before they enter the courtroom? And what advice do these panelists have for the rest of us? I'm joined today by the Honorable Kathleen Quigley, judge of the Pima County Superior Court in Tucson, Arizona. The Honorable Teresa Delick, judge of the Mahoning County Juvenile Court in Youngstown, Ohio. And Terry Deal, principal court management consultant with the National Center for State Courts. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. From the White House to Congress, to the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, we hear about the national mental health crisis. What are the signs of the crisis that you are seeing every day in the courts? What do we all need to know about young people in mental health? Judge Delick? Thank you, Peter. I'm glad you brought up those alarming statistics because we find that over 70% of the youth with mental health disorders end up in the juvenile justice system with unaddressed or underaddressed needs. And over 90% of the youth in the juvenile justice system have experienced trauma. As jurists, we need to have a heightened awareness of the impact of trauma on the lives of our youth. Currently, it remains unknown what impact childhood trauma has on the trajectory of serious mental illness. So we have the opportunity to stem the disease and provide early identification and treatment. When we see a youth, we may wonder if his behavior is affected by trauma or mental health, but we do know the two collide. Trauma contributes to the dysregulation of emotions and behaviors, hyperarousal, hypervigilance, avoidance, depression, numbing, and angry outbursts. As judges, we need to know the difference between criminal behavior, delinquent behavior, and what's a result of trauma. Is it reflexive? Is it protective? So I think what we need to do, left alone, trauma will negatively affect the youth's response to any situation, which can be misinterpreted as delinquent conduct, but is merely just their response to how they've been traumatized and treated over the past. So let's not criminalize the students at this point in juvenile court. Our job is to habilitate and rehabilitate. Our job also is to prevent these youth from coming down that pipeline into the justice system. And now we have a new layer of trauma from the pandemic. It's affected layers of people from all walks of life. And Terry Deal, my colleague, will address it in more detail. 
But when I think about trauma and I think about how it brings youth into the courtroom, I remember this one young boy I had, he was 15, his name was Tom. He presented in the courtroom and he had all these felonies, yet he was very quiet, demure, respectful. And I was just wondering what brought him here? I asked him, how long was he in counseling? And he said, 10 years. I thought, I said, he's been in counseling since he was five years old. What could have happened at that point? So I said, are you making headway with your counselor? I knew the answer, it's been 10 years and he's before me. But he said, no, I'm not. And I asked him if he would be willing to try a new counselor. And he said, yes. I said, would he try one of our trauma-informed counselors at the court? He said, yes. Only on the condition that I was there the first time and introduced him to the new counselor. Obviously, I agreed to do it. So there we met that one day in the counselor's office. It was a warm day, short sleeve. And I looked at his arms and up and down his arms, he had cigarette and cigar burns. But geez, did someone do that to him or were they self-inflicted? So we were talking and just making small chit chat. Then I asked him, I said, Tom, do you mind if I asked you a question? He said, no, go ahead. I said, what are those marks on your arms? And he said, those are cigarette and cigar burns. I said, may I ask how they happened? He said, yes. I said, well, how? He said, I did it. He said, I like burning my skin. I like it. Everyone knows that's not the right answer. That's not what you would expect. No one likes to be hurt or to hurt himself. So then I looked at him and we just looked and it was quiet. And then I looked at him again and I said, Tom, who hurt you? Pause. He broke down and cried. He said, no one's ever asked me. He said, I was raped when I was five years old walking home from school. So here I had a young boy who was 15 before me on all these felonies, scarred up and down his arms because at five years old, he was raped with that trauma. I can only imagine the trauma that he endured during those next 10 years. The good news is with the right counseling, he did begin to heal. But the sad part is for 10 years, that boy suffered. We need as jurists to be able to step in sooner and do something instead of letting a young boy lose 10 years of his life. By looking at them and seeing beyond their behavior and saying, what happened to you? What caused that behavior? We become more effective and we become the vehicle to change these lives, which is our job. So I really think trauma and becoming trauma aware is what we need to do as jurors if we're going to do anything to stem this tide. What a heart-wrenching story. Judge Quigley? Thanks, Judge Dillick, for sharing that. That had to be really difficult both to share it and to be with Tom during that time but he probably felt good that somebody cared. And I think that's important is that these children know that there are people who care. And what we see and what we know is that mental health is complex. It's intricately woven into the other areas of social and emotional health. For example, substance abuse, trauma, the child or the family has experienced in the home or outside of the home, just as Judge Jellick shared. Mental health challenges of other family members and learned behaviors. It can be difficult from the bench to know exactly what is happening with that child unless you ask questions. Questions, I think, are imperative from the bench. It's made even more challenging during the pandemic when we were limiting contact. 
As judicial officers, we need to rely on our juvenile justice community, including our own training. And it's incumbent upon us as judges to ensure that we are trained as well as those that work in the court are trained and trauma-informed training is crucial, as Judge Jellick pointed out. We need to rely on the experience of law enforcement officers who refer cases, defense attorneys, probation officers, detention officers, parents, educational professionals who work with these children in the school setting, and mental health professionals in the community or our own mental health professionals at the court system. And they need to help guide us and we need to work together as a team. If we stay connected, if we share information and we are better aware, we can better serve these youth. As Judge Dillett pointed out, I think questions are imperative. The other day I had a case and I didn't talk to the child himself, but as I was preparing and I'm looking through the file and I was on with the county attorney and to the probation officer beforehand, I was asking questions about his parents and where were they? And it appeared as though he was in DCS care. And as I asked questions, I found out that his father had MS and it was out of his home and was in a care facility and had been moved multiple times for, to multiple care facilities and that the outlook was not good. I learned that his mother was missing and she was in California and abusing substances. And then I look at the charges and the charges are clearly couched in anger. This child has been angry since he was nine. And you go back to his first charge where he was destroying some property. And again, he was exerting the same behavior which I think is, is important that we connect our dependency and our juvenile justice side of the court as well, because I think the prosecutors don't often get this information. And unless they know, then they're gonna approach that juvenile justice case and that charge a very different way than they might had they known that the child might have mental health issues or need services in the community as opposed to it truly being a criminal act, it's really a cry for help. And so I really encourage you to ask questions from the bench of each other, uh, ask questions of the child when appropriate, to try to dig down and find out what is going on with that child's life. And is this mental health or is this some other issue that's driving this child? Because these children are not born this way. These children are often, as Judge Jellick pointed out, made this way. Mm -hmm. May I say something about what Judge Quigley mentioned? We also know as juvenile jurors, judges, that it's from our dependency docket, you know, the dependent, abused, neglected youth that then spill over to our delinquency docket. And, and we do need to do more work on the dependency docket so we can prevent those youths from crossing over. And exactly how she mentioned what we need to do by collaborating and, and meeting with everyone and, and sharing information. Thank you, Judge Quigley. Thank you. And I have to say, I really look to Terry Deal as well because we started our school justice uh, partnership I don't know how many years ago now, to pull together behavioral health, to pull together the court, probation, law enforcement in the schools. You know, when I'm just thinking of one example, one of our meetings is that the law enforcement, when we were talking about having an approach to a child was having a mental health crisis, we said, you need training. And they said, oh, don't worry, we've got training. And we said, you do, where was your training? They said, well, we've got it for the adults. And we said, no, it's very different for the children. So opening up these lines of communications Schools often are in the dark about what happened to a child. There was a child that was at their school that we learned that the parents was out of school for a period of time. The parents told the school that he was out because he uh, had been in a car accident. He had a head injury. So he came back to school. The school was treating him with protocol for a head injury. It turns out he had tried to commit suicide. 
The family was embarrassed to say anything, but the school was not prepared for that. And then it turns out he had other behaviors. So we need to find ways to work together, to collaborate, to open up those doors, to support children and families in our community and take away the stigma of mental health. Terry Deal? I can't agree more with what Judge Quigley is saying about stigma and, and what um, Judge Shellick has um, said about trauma. I think it's really important for us to realize that when a young person, a young person's behavior is communication. A lot of times we think about, we have a deficit kind of way of thinking about what's wrong with this kid. How can we fix this kid? And that's not the right way that we should be thinking about a young person. We should be asking just as Judge Shellick's story illustrated, what happened to you? And how can I help you? And what supports do you need? Because their behavior is really communicating to us what's happening inside of them. They may not have the words to communicate themselves. And I think it's important for us to realize that our country was headed towards an adolescent mental health crisis even before the pandemic. And the conditions in the pandemic exacerbated that. So especially for our young people with disabilities, LGBTQ communities, and our youth of color. Many of the protective factors that research tells us keeps kids out of our system, like school connectedness and having pro-social activities and pro-social relationships, they were completely disconnected from that during the pandemic. Um, Many kids still have not returned to regular school. And those things that we have as a safety net for our young people have kind of disintegrated over the pandemic. And we need to be aware of that and also understand that the adults, the professionals, and the uh, parents and families are suffering from burnout and stress too throughout this past two years. So they may not be responding appropriately to young people, and they may be more likely to refer them to court or um, have the misunderstanding that our juvenile court is the best place to get treatment for young people. I hear that a lot. Judge Quigley mentioned uh, school justice partnerships, and we do hear that from schools thinking, oh, if I refer a young person to court, then we'll get them treatment. And I will say that juvenile court can help with that, but it's not the best place to refer a young person or a family that needs mental health services. Uh, the juvenile court should have a role in helping communities build those mechanisms to make sure that families and young people have access to mental health quality, mental health service within their communities so that referral to juvenile court isn't the a primary option. May I jump in? I wanted to say something that Terry brought up, and I think you touched upon it in the very beginning. With this pandemic, we have an unknown level of social and emotional learning that's lacking. And we don't know how these youth will ever catch up because it's during these school years from K through 12 that they have that opportunity to really experience and grow with their uh, social and emotional learning. You brought this up where you talk about the pandemic and the effect it can have on schools and it had a devastating effect on the social and emotional learning of our students. It's in school that they have an atmosphere that's surroundings to be able to develop their social skills and, and that's lacking. And even now with some schools opening up and many schools opening up, we still have a disengagement and we have to wonder who's going to come back and how do we get them back and how do we re-engage them? Those are concerns I have because these students have been out of school for two years. So what are we going to do to bring them back? Um, And I worry about what's going to happen. And as Terry mentioned, we know in our state, 90% of the youth in our uh, juvenile state detention center, 90% of them have mental health issues. How many of those were trauma caused, trauma uh, aggravated, trauma created? 
So those are questions I have, and those are questions we should be looking for answers to and making sure when we're on the bench, we're doing what we can to divert those youth and get them in the right services. And I'll add to that, you know, one of the things we discovered with our school justice partnership was that uh, when we brought the teachers to the table is they could, they were telling us that the teachers can tell from kindergarten, first grade, second grade, who the children are that are struggling. So, and early intervention is not happening at that point. They do wait till they get to the age where they could potentially be referred to juvenile court, which is not the appropriate age. So as a community, as collaborators, we need to come together and find ways to get those children in, into the services they need sooner and support that family as well sooner so that we can avoid this down the road for those children and those families. In prior podcasts, we've learned about the National Judicial Task Force to examine state courts' response to mental illness. We've learned about its resources and its recommendations. What should we be doing in the courtroom now about children, youth, and families with behavioral health needs? Judge Quigley? Well, I think as we've sort of been reiterating here, training and making connections. As judges, court professionals, and court administrators, it's our responsibility to be up to date with our training for all of us who encounter children or their parents who may struggle with mental health. And research and best practices, like much of the juvenile world, evolves quickly, from new ideas and approaches for addressing or identifying those with mental health, to reducing trauma triggers in our own courthouses and practices to maintain a calm and safe environment for the children, families, and others in the courthouse. I think that is helpful, making the courthouses, frankly, a little more welcome place and a little more comfortable place for families who are already stressed when they have to come to court and nervous. I just remember as a lawyer, I came to court the first time, I was trained, I was prepared, it was my job, I was hired to do it, and I was terrified the first time I had to go into a courtroom and speak before a judge. So imagine how these families feel with no preparation, and they're the ones that everybody has eyes on. So we need to make it a little more welcoming and open and use our training to try to identify areas where we can do it. Try to make a connection with the children and the families. Use motivational interviewing to ask questions of the child or the parent or guardian. Do not make assumptions. Um, I think Judge Jellick's story was a perfect example of not making assumptions. I think respect and kindness and a welcoming demeanor go a very long way. Use names, not pronouns. Don't call them a juvenile. Call them at least by their first name. The parents should be Miss or Mr., whatever, whichever they prefer. And don't use nouns when you're calling them. They are people, they have feelings, um, and they've had challenge in their lives. I think we need to also consider looking for trauma triggers in our own courthouse or courtrooms. Could your courthouse be impacting those with mental health and trauma and triggering them without your knowledge? Um, have someone look at your courthouse, maybe have a trauma audit, look at your lobby, your courtrooms to see if there are easy solutions. Look at how your security staff greet families when they come in. Are they running them through the security process in a way that's just gruff and just a process as opposed to greeting them, saying hello, welcoming them to the courthouse, asking if they've had how their day was, um, really being considerate of that. Is your staff greeting people and they're being considerate of them and kind when they come in? Consider the paint colors in your courtroom and your lobbies. Uh, there are colors that are, that are harsher and more triggering and colors that are softer and more welcoming and calming. Look at the decor in your courtroom. Consider the lighting in your courthouse. Is it harsh is it, or is it softer lighting that is calmer to be in? Look at your seating. Is it comfortable? I mean, we changed our courthouse lobby after doing our trauma audit and it's comfortable 
couches that are stain resistant, but they're couches that people can sit on. We have books in the lobby so parents can read with their children while they're waiting in the lobby when they have younger children. That's welcoming and warm. Consider that. Consider the chairs in your courtroom. Are they comfortable? Are they hard plastic and hard for people to sit in for long periods when they're in your courtroom? So many things we can consider. Review your inner internal processes and procedures and protocols. Are detained children brought to your courtroom in cuffs and leg irons? If so, why? Look at the success that other courts have had when they change this practice. And, and so many of courts around the country have done that and really have had no security issues. Do you have an approach to address what may be the root cause of a referral? Do you look at the mental health of the child or the child's family? If you don't have a mental health diversion process or, or system, consider a new system approach to these cases. Bring the county attorney in and talk about it. Um, so many times I've had children come in where they were uh, maybe scratching their name in a desk uh, in, a, in a program at school, or they knocked over a trash can, or they got upset with the teacher. But if you look behind what the actions were to see what it was, you may reveal a mental health issue that's better addressed through the behavioral health system. And that child may not be before you again um, and may have the appropriate services. Court administrators are well poised with their presiding judges to convene a committee of court professionals, attorneys, mental health providers, schools, community members to evaluate and consider new programs, address trauma-informed approaches and practices within your own courthouse and within your staff. And uh, I know that Judge Dell is gonna talk about this, but I think that this, this collaboration is so key in your community. Courts are great leaders and they should lead the community in this area. Judge Delick? Yes, I wanted to follow up on two things that uh, Judge Quigley brought up. Um, number one, when we talk about trauma, judges, we need to remember that we are a walking traumatic event, especially in the Black Road. When you think about it, the night before, families were not sleeping, they're worrying about what we're going to do as judges, and then they see us. Try not to be so frightening. Try to be real with them. There's, you can always control the demeanor and you can always control respect, but there is one thing about being real with these individuals, knowing that, letting them know that you care. So remember, we cause trauma just by being, and I don't think many judges think about that. The other thing is I wanted to throw out in our lobby, uh, Judge Quigley, we put out mandalas with uh, coloring pens so students can just color and fill in those. I mean, we even find adults doing it. There's so many things you can do to be trauma-informed. But importantly, what I want to talk about is cross-system collaboration. Judges, we're conveners. We have the power to bring anybody into the, the courtroom, into a meeting room, and we need to take that and use it to improve our services. We need to partner with everyone in the community. We need to build relationships with schools, law enforcement, clergy, social service agencies, public health agencies, families. There's no one we should keep out of our circle and we need to help the families find the resources that are in the community. You have to remember, these families are fractured. Sometimes they're being held together by a thread. And then as a judge, we put on an order saying you have to do X, Y, and Z, and I want to know in two weeks that you did it all. These lives are overwhelmed and we now have just put on another layer of things that they can't get done because they don't have food, they don't have transportation, and, and they, they don't even have it together. And here I'm expecting them to get to one appointment to another, and I shouldn't do that. So we created a family coordinator. Uh, we call it family engagement coordinator. And each case is assigned a family engagement coordinator to meet with the person, the family, before the student and the family ever come to court. 
And then they find out what their needs are and we start plugging them in. They make sure the appointments are made. They make sure the families and the youth get to those appointments because we want them to get to those appointments because we want them to succeed. We want them to get better. And by just putting it on them, they can't do it all. And we shouldn't expect them to. We have to realize these are families that are struggling. So by doing these collaborations and working with our partners, we're able to find out that when the partners get a phone call from us, they help and they want to help and they see how this all comes together. You need to stay in touch with them and you need to thank them as well. Uh, we often hold an event where we uh, recognize our partners because we can't do anything without them. And for any of us to think we can exist without our partners, we're fooling ourselves. We know time is of the essence. And so we need to make these connections quickly, fastly, and to make sure they're lasting. Families cannot run through the phone book if there isn't even a phone book anymore. Phone services are often on, phones aren't working, the bill's not paid. They, they can't get through, they get put on hold and there's a robotic answer that they have to go through. This is just too much for some of these families. So I really think we need to use the strength of our communities and build upon those because we're building upon them. I always like to say we, we create this safety net around our families and slowly we're able to take away that safety net and let the family walk on their own. And we see that happen time after time. That once we wrap around them, we can finally let go and they're whole. And we do that by building upon their strengths because so many families think they're a failure. They think, what have I done? How did I end up in this system? And I think what we need to do is you have to be strength-based and, and build upon those. And I often say, you know, a student who runs away has a strength. I always doubted if my children could live on their own without me, right? And we have children who are living on the streets, who are finding ways uh, to sleep, to eat, to find clothing, and that's a skill. So let's not always look at everything as a negative, but find the way that it's positive. Every family has strengths. So let's build upon those and never give up hope. And that's one thing we always say at juvenile court. If one thing we have, we have an abundance of hope. We hope all the time. These families are in such despair and we have to pull them out from under that. And we have to be the people that says, you know, you know what, things are going to get better. You can do it because you do have strengths. And by being that beacon of hope for them, we do see that things turn around. And so it's important to do collaboration and make sure everyone is carrying that message. No one needs a Debbie Downer. And we all have to say, you can do this. Oh, sorry, if I could add to what Judge Delick said, she's absolutely right. Building that system of hope into your culture is so important. We have something very similar. And I think it's so important that, that our, we as judges and our staff live by it. We believe every family, every child is capable of success, no exceptions. And along that line, um, if your court doesn't have a, a court psychologist, if you don't have clinicians, it's something you should really consider. We started doing that here and now. Our uh, probation clinicians are working with children that are younger than 10 years old to provide them, th them and their family MST, the multisystemic therapy in the home to try to have a diversion point for those families to never come back to the court because we don't bring them in through petitions, but we can provide so sources of help. So feel free to reach out to NCSC, Judge Delic, or myself if you have, don't have that type of opportunity in your court to talk about what you could develop. And I know Judge Delic has some amazing ones at her court. Terry? And I'll add that NCSC actually does have some resources right in line with what Judge Delic and Judge Quigley have been talking about. 
they provided some really good examples of being trauma-informed in in-person courtrooms, but we actually just released a publication on how to have trauma-informed virtual hearings in child welfare cases, because there are some practices that can help ensure the psychological safety of individuals participating in virtual courtrooms as well. So I'll encourage you to, to check out that document. And also our, um, the Juvenile Justice Subcommittee of the Mental Health Task Force has together a guidelines and principles of juvenile justice, mental health diversion, and many of the things that are coming up in our conversation today, like cross-system collaboration, for example, are part of the guidelines. And so that guidelines document offers some concrete next steps on how to do those activities in your court, and also a number of really good uh, resources that have links in that document to help learn more about it. How can judges and court administrators support the health and safety of young people even before they come to court? Terry? Yeah, I love this question um, because you know the um, nature of juvenile court is very reactive. Often we wait until a family, we can't do anything with a family until they're in front of us. But as Judge Quigley and Judge Delic have mentioned, the, pow the convening um, power of judges is so important. And I see judges not only as conveners, but also really important and unique community members because the perspective that judges have, what they see day in and day out on the bench, what they see what works for families, what doesn't work for families, what is needed in the community, their perspective is something that many community stakeholders don't have. And so they are important not only to bring people together, but also to have a seat at the table to listen to the community and also to, to help the community come to solutions on some of those issues. And at NCSC, we actually have a new uh, effort that is supported by the Child Welfare Subcommittee of the task force, and it's called Upstream. And the Upstream framework is grounded in a prevention mindset. So the ultimate goal is that we're providing families with community-based support so that they never come in contact with the Child Welfare Agency or with the court. And if they do, we provide them with those supports so that they don't come in contact with the agency or court again. So it provides a basic structure for courts and communities to engage as partners in building and strengthening communities and families. Um, it has a process for walking these community level groups through mapping out what are the resources available in the community for everyone, for families that have um, individual, family, or environmental risk factors, and also for those who have allegations of abuse or neglect so that we can provide them with the services and help support them outside of the court. And of course, once they, if they are to come to the attention of the court, what are those services that we can provide to help strengthen them so that they don't come back to us? So this is um, really exciting work that we're doing to help support the needs of children and families, including their mental health needs both in the community and for court involved families. Judge Delick? To intervene, I think we have to intervene as early as possible. In some courts, I hear them say, oh, there's nothing I can do until a case lands on my lap. No, I disagree. The school justice partnership that uh, Judge Quigley talked about, we have one too, and, and ours too was, was created with the wise and sage advice of Terry Deal. So Terry, you brought so much to our court and I thank you for it. But we started a school justice partnership because we knew about the school to prison pipeline, right? And the big issue for schools is truancy. And usually juvenile judges say that's a school issue and schools usually say that's a court issue. Well, let's meet halfway and let's both take ownership of it because we know that truancy is a lead indicator of delinquency. 
So we know eventually we'll get those students, right? So let's do something uh, creatively. So we started the partnership and we called it early warning system because that's what it is. And I think courts need to do this because you find out who's in the pipeline before they even come to you. And our pipeline starts with kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. And we look at uh, three things we call the ABCs, attendance, behavior, and curriculum. And by looking at those three factors, we're able to judge the whole student, not just based upon truancy, because you can have someone who's truant and still receiving all these A's because the student's just bright. You can have a student who's coming to school every day, right, but is a real behavior problem. Or you can have a student who's coming every day and is failing. So by looking at those three core factors, we were able to come up with an algorithm that each school was able to use for measuring. And by measuring, we looked if a student was on track, sliding, or off track. And then what our court did, we were the hub for all the schools. And each school building had a team of their teacher, principal, uh, custodian, uh, school resource officer, and our court. And we would meet weekly, we still meet weekly, and we look at each student and we find out where that student is. So no student is going to get too far into that system of failing, too much truancy, too many behavior problems without us knowing about it. And then we do know that once they get off track, we have programs that we can implement. And our schools have adopted those programs and put them into the school system and even now give them school credit. That's how wonderful it is. And that's how our schools have embraced this. And so this partnership we have has decreased our official cases. Number one, our truancy cases dropped from 500 uh, down to like 20, it was remarkable. And then we had our official delinquency docket in the time that we started this, there were 600, we're down to below 150. So we know early intervention and diversion directly impacts the court. So I know I don't have all those students coming on my official docket anymore. And then maybe, going over to the detention facilities or even to adult court being bound over. So these systems work. And as Judge Quigley stated, it's good to have psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, social workers on your, your court. You may say, hey, I'm a court. We're, you know, we're about the law. No, guess what? We're social jurisprudence. That's what we are. And by having all these different um, skill sets on our bench and in the court, we're able to come at, at cases from so many different angles. So I go back and I say, you know what? You're the judge. Be the leader in your community. You call them. They're going to pick up the phone. You write to them and say, I have a meeting. Will you please come? They'll come. They'll follow your lead. We need to be there and we need to be the one pulling everyone together. And we need to do as much intervention diversion as we can. And our school, to just, school and justice partnership does just that. It has been one of the major changes in the trajectory of school to delinquency that I ever imagined. And I, I wish more courts did it. And I know Judge Quigley has a wonderful program too. Judge Quigley? So yes, absolutely, we can help. To build on what Judge Delick said, you know, if you have a plan and convene, they will attend. You know, there are times when the court needs to be the leader, even though it's not truly the court's work. And the School Justice Partnership is exactly part of that. You know, we had a situation, you know, we talked about teachers and making referrals. And so part of our school justice partnership is we brought the teachers in and we showed them what a child went through from the time they were taken by a police officer to the court detention center for a referral and then what happens to them there. And the teachers all started to say, whoa, that's not what we wanted. 
And so we've developed a better way for teachers to make referrals. And in fact, uh, we have our we have now law enforcement. I think this has been in other areas across the country where they do not a diversion because at least in our state that's within the purview of the county attorney. But they do a deflection. So they work with the students and they developed a program through their law enforcement agency to put families into to try to address the work and really positive programs and build relationships between the school and law enforcement and the children. So there's lots of things that you can do, lots of ideas and creative ideas. It's great for the court to be the convener. The court should be the convener because a lot of times those other agencies don't think to convene and come together to address issues. So the court convenes, pull in the, you know, the appropriate agencies, and then at some point the court can turn over the leadership of that to the appropriate group and remain at the table, but not have to carry the responsibility. So think about that. Think outside the box and look for ways to support your community. And there are so many ideas out there that you could use, adapt, modify, build on for your court. I love, I just want to mention, I love um, Judge Kluge that you mentioned uh, educating teachers about what the juvenile court does. That's something that has become, over my years of working in this field, that's something that's so clear to me now is how little the community and stakeholder, community stakeholders know about the juvenile court. And juvenile court judges have such a unique and important responsibility in the lives of young people. And I think that if we were more um, proactive about teaching uh, community members and teachers and principals and superintendents and what the juvenile court does and the thoughtfulness and intention it puts into decisions and that we also agree with being trauma-informed and we also know about restorative justice practices that are you know popping up in a lot of schools I think that that would go so much farther towards building community um, collaboration because I think historically we don't do a lot of PR in juvenile court and I feel like that's one place that we could really improve is by letting people know about the good work that's happening in juvenile courts. Terry and Judge Quigley, I want to jump in and say this, that one of the first things we did when I took the bench over 20 years ago was uh, we started doing training in the community about how to change behavior. And everyone thought it was just about punishment. Oh, they need to be locked up. They need to do this. And, and you know, we fortunately, the research was emerging then. And uh, we had it. We could show that punishment alone does not change behavior. And I think about it and I, you try to tell people that if I yell at you will, you, will you be motivated to do anything more? And the average person has to say no. And I have to think we have to let them know that, let them know about the things that go on in juvenile court and the sad effects that you see. And I think Judge Quickly, you mentioned that you know, being locked up is not what anyone wants for any child. And this punishment alone does not change behavior. And we have statistics to show it. So sometimes you have to start with educating your own community because I was first called soft on crime. And I said, no, I'm not soft on crime. I'm smart on crime. And we were able to show the statistics and the research. And it finally slowly started showing and changing everyone's, the way they thought about juvenile justice and what we needed to do and what we should do and what we should be doing. So thank you for bringing those items up. What is the one takeaway you want to leave our audience with? Judge Delick? Well, I'll start off because uh, I'm a SAMHSA trauma-informed trainer, and I go everywhere. My colleagues and my friends all get tired of me saying trauma, 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 but it all begins with trauma. And everyone in the courthouse, everyone in the courthouse, from the judge to whoever locks the door at the end of the day, uh, needs to be trauma-informed. And that means your prosecutors, your defense attorneys, your law enforcement, 
your clerks, even though you say, oh, they're just behind a window, they're not taking anything. No, they need to be trauma-informed because they need to recognize signs of trauma. And we all need to be trauma-informed because we never know when someone's going to have a trauma-related incident, so we know what to do. So everyone who comes in contact needs to be trauma-informed. We created a trauma-informed community in uh, Mahoning County that we believe in training everybody, uh, even the average person on the street. So by recognizing the significance of trauma's impact and the importance of building resiliency skills in our youth, we're changing the way things are done in our county. I often think too about Tom. Tom had many ways to talk. And I think Terry brought this up earlier. You know, we always expect people to use words, but our youth use so many other means to communicate with us. And we have to listen, not just with our ears, but our heart and our eyes and see, see what's really going on and look beyond that youth. We need to pick up their subtle signs and say, oh my gosh, this child is hurting, this child is saying something. So look for those subtle signs, those cigarette burns. They use many methods to communicate, withdrawal, anger. Children naturally want to be happy. And when you see someone who's not happy, who's withdrawn, something happened and you just need to find out what happened. And once we get to that point, and once we have that person, that student in trauma-informed counseling, then let's start building resiliency. Let's not always focus on how bad it is, but how good it can be. And I think, again, I go back to being hope. Let's build resiliency, letting these children know things can get better and you can become stronger and you can be that person you were a long time ago and you'll overcome. Let them regain their spirit. And I, that's what I want. I want people to become trauma-informed and recognize it. And once you see that, everything else starts to unravel and make sense. And we have to make sense out of what we do. Otherwise, we'll just be frustrated and, and run in circles. And there's so much work for us to do. We need to do it. And we can't wait any longer. Judge Quigley? And I would add to what Judge Ellick said, do not be satisfied with the status quo. If we were satisfied with the status quo, our detention center would still have approximately 180 to 200 youth in it every day. We're down to 20. Um, and it, so it, there's change. We need to do change. Where you lead, they will follow. You can make a difference. Your passion, your decision to look at something and decide if you can do it better, be an agent of change. We really need that in this community. If nobody had made changes today and didn't continue to look forward, then we wouldn't be anywhere. And with NACOM and NCSC and other organizations that are leading the way, the National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges, there are opportunities out there for you to lead change and look for areas to change. So please look forward to take uh, with your passion, use that to take steps forward to collaborate, pull together people and make a difference in your community for those families and those children. They matter. Terry? Judge Ellick and Judge Quigley said, uh, you know, such great takeaways. I think I will just reiterate something I said earlier, which is we do have a lot of young people who are involved in juvenile court that have mental health needs, but the juvenile court is not the best place to get individuals' mental health needs. So while we need to make sure that we have resources to help court-involved youth, we also need to partner with our community to make sure that young people who have mental health needs have ways to access those services without a juvenile court referral. So diverting them if, and diverting them to quality mental health care. And that is something that is really important and requires judicial leadership and community collaboration to make happen. I want to thank Judge Kathleen Quigley, Judge Teresa Delick, and Terry Deal for joining us today and talking about young people, families, 
and our nation's mental health crisis. We all need to know more about this important topic and how we can help. Join us on July 19th for the fifth and final episode of our series on mental health and the courts. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. You see this crisis every day and you see it in very tangible terms. It is your commitment and effort that carries the courts along to completing its pledge of providing fair and impartial justice. Thank you. Join us in June for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.